Hi, I'm your host, Tom DeSavia. Join me as I interview guests from music and entertainment from around the world about what they're up to right now. Stay tuned, because we're gone in 30 minutes. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Gone in 30 Minutes. Our very special guest is Mr. Brian Ritchie, the Violent Femmes, coming all the way from Melbourne, Australia. This is actually the first time that I've been outside of Tasmania for over a year, because I live in Tasmania. So uh, yesterday I flew to Melbourne, and it, it's the first time since I was 18 years old that I stayed in one place for, for a year. I've been on the move for decades and decades. So this whole experience that we're having globally has been a huge shift in lifestyle for me. How it, it's fun, and I've said this to a lot of people myself in a different sort of less chaotic way than yours has been. I said to someone to myself, I've been working in music since I was 19, and this is the first time I've seen seasons change in, in LA. And I kind of liked it. Once I got over the feeling like I wasn't driving without a seatbelt, it was <laughs> all right. I mean, what was that like yeah. for you? I mean, just, you know, no one expected the world to stop, but it, it did. Well, it didn't stop for me. Um, it contracted. I mean, it just was a geographical uh, constriction, I guess you could say. But uh, in terms of activity, I've been busy the whole time. Obviously, we're not touring. The Femmes are not touring. So that's the first time that we've uh, been involuntarily sidelined. But I got used to it pretty quickly. It, it forced me to get a routine for the first time in my life. Did you find, like, personally that, that it, was, it was all right? Well, just coping with reality is is a it's an important thing psychologically. You know, you have to analyze the situation you're in and make the best of it. So, there were positive aspects, like for example, sleeping regularly, <laughs> which is a luxury I haven't had for probably about uh, forty years. And um, in a musical sense, there was quite a bit to learn because I have a very, very active musical life uh, in Australia. And I learned, here's a major thing that I learned. Music is a necessity. Imported music is a luxury. You know, we've, we've gotten used to the idea that musicians are always flying into wherever we live or if you're in LA, then you have musicians who are actually moving there all the time to participate in something where they think that then they're gonna fly around from LA to other parts of the world. Um, that stopped. Does music stop? No, music does not stop. So it was great because, uh, I mean, I always appreciated the local musicians wherever I've lived. And I've lived a lot of places, like I've lived in uh, New York, I've lived in Milwaukee, obviously, that's where the band started. I lived in Rome, and I always liked the local musicians. But many members of the public just take that for granted. Now, uh, at, in Tasmania and in Australia, we've been able to have gigs, but mainly local gigs, because we don't actually have the virus. Uh, right. It's been contained. So people had to get used to listening to local musicians. 
going out to hear the, the local bands. It's been great. Well, it's funny. That's something I've been talking. I think we actually talked about with another guest on here, but I talked to my friends a lot. I mean, one of my um, soapbox preaching always has been the, the death of regionalism sort of from mid nineties on in the Starbucks culture. And the one thing that's come of this is just what you said. I said, it's sort of brought back this regionalism because I've been not only forced to, but psychologically, I think so locally now. And yeah. it's been a good thing. And it's, and we're all, I think, consciously, you know, shopping that way and supporting that way. But it, it, it has hit me again. Like when music does start up here, I'm going to be seeing local bands again. <laughs> well, you have a lot of them. So that's, <laughs> that's good. Um, American music is based on regionalism, as you said. Absolutely. If you look back historically, there's the origins of jazz in New Orleans, and you can still hear that music in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the few places that still has it. Uh, right. The Chicago blues, uh, mm -hmm. St. Louis jazz versus Kansas City jazz. Uh, even Oklahoma had certain kinds of jazz and blues and swing, country swing. Uh, Texas blues was different than the Mississippi blues. So that's not all going to come back exactly the same way, but I think people are going to uh, be at least uh, focusing on local music more. It's great. Every place you've mentioned, and, and my favorite my favorite place is Memphis, where I love going to Memphis because everything tastes like Memphis, looks like Memphis. You go to Beale Street and you walk anywhere and you're like... I, you, you can't be blindfolded and drop there and go, where am I? And going back, you said, uh, been doing this for 40 years and congratulations on a 40 year anniversary, which is certainly. Ironic that we're celebrating our 40th anniversary as a band by doing nothing. <laughs> You'll never forget where you were though, will you? <laughs> no, no, it's interesting. So yeah, when we start touring again, it'll be, I guess the 41st anniversary tour. So. <laughs> Which will look cooler on a T-shirt, actually. So it's okay. Yeah. Memphis is a. It's it's still alive. I was there. Well, we played with the Femmes recently, and I went around to some of the studios and visited Jody Stevens uh, over there. And uh, we played at Graceland, and we took it. We had a private tour of Graceland. That's a little eccentric that place, but it was yeah. very much fun. Sun Studio, Stacks, all this stuff is still in the culture uh, and, and the music. They've done a lot at a governmental level there as well to drive grassroots uh, musical activity. And even during COVID, they've had special uh, online concerts that the city has presented in, in Memphis. So this is an example of... Um, I mean, we don't usually think of the government helping uh, music, but they, they have done that in, in Memphis. I've researched that. Agreed. No, agreed. And you know, like I said, it doesn't hurt that the nicest man in rock and roll, Jody Stevens, is sort of there as a magnet. And he's the yeah, truly, truly the Jimmy Stewart of rock and roll, the nicest man in the world. It, when you went through Graceland, what struck me was, one, how small it was, and yeah. two, uh, how home, home shopping network it was. Very retro. Yeah. It, was, it, it looked like a department store display from the, from the past. 
Yeah, a lot of shag. There was it's been years, but there was a room that was completely shagged with like porcelain monkeys everywhere, and it was fantastic. <laughs> Going back to if we can go in the time machine back to forty years ago, what were what were you, you were talking about regionalism? And you were were you were you born in Wisconsin? Is that where you're? Yeah, from? I'm. I'm the of the Femmes. I'm the true born and raised, and always lived in Milwaukee person. Gordon was born in New York City, which is uh, interesting, but then eventually he ended up in Milwaukee and then back in New York City. And Victor, the original drummer, he was born in Racine, which is a city that was about halfway between Milwaukee and Chicago when there were cities in between, but now it's just one big strip mall. Right, right. What was inspiring to you? Because you guys have gone through so many true punk rock creations from, you know, folk to, to soul to jazz that have infiltrated your music. Was that all there 40 years ago? Well, we considered ourselves to be an extension or kind of a response to punk. Um, you know, sometimes people say, if I'm doing an interview, they say, well, you're not a punk band, but uh, uh, what, you know, was it an influence on you? And, and actually, we are a punk band. I mean, we just, we just thought that we were doing the next evolution of punk or a, a different evolution. So the basic music that we were influenced by was the same music that influenced the other punk bands. Um, if you really wanted to analyze the femme sound, it's, it's like a cross between the Velvet Underground and uh, Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps. You know, if you just take those two bands, everything that they had is in our sound. And of course, we had many other influences like Sun Ra and uh, Coltrane, Rolling Stones were a big influence. But basically, we wanted to play the music of the Velvet Underground style storytelling when that was a precursor to punk, mixed with kind of Ramones type energy, but on acoustic instruments. And the the idea of doing rock and roll with acoustic instruments like that came from the early rockabilly, like especially Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps with the brushes on the drums yeah. and the kind of jazz approach that they had. So we considered ourselves traditional rock music, even though people at the time thought that we were very eccentric and like coming out of nowhere. And so did they, did they welcome you locally when you first came out or were you... No. It was <laughs> what was your first gig? Tell me about your first gig. Well, when I met Gordon, he was playing in a little coffee house. And that's when I first met him. Our first actual gig that we played together was, was as a, a duet. He invited me to come to his high school because he was being inducted into the National Honor Society. And they had the National Honor Society talent show. So he wanted me to help him with that. But we did give me the car. And there was an entire auditorium full of high school kids. And at that time, give me the car was a pretty radical statement. You know, it was basically yeah. about trying to have sex in the backseat of the car. And so, so anyway, the teachers were not too excited. The principal in particular was standing on the side of the state. Stop, stop, stop. The kids were going insane. It was like Beatlemania. So that was our first gig and probably still our best gig. <laughs> we had some good gigs since then, but that was classic rock and roll. How, how long did it take before you ventured out? When did you tour? 
at, after getting together was it pretty soon well, after? Well, started playing on the street a lot yeah. because we couldn't get any any gigs in the clubs. And while we were playing on the street, the Pretenders spotted us and asked us to open up the show for them. That gave us a lot of confidence. So then we went into a studio. We, we used our own investment. We invested our own money in studio time, which at that time was, it's not like now where you can just buy, a, you know, buy something like this size and record on it in your bedroom. We had went into a proper studio and recorded the first album, which we sent to about 100 record labels. And there was only one label that was interested, which was Slash Records in L.A., and they gave us the worst record contract that anybody has ever been. <laughs> you know, like a, a lot of people, uh, you know, they, they are nostalgic about the Slash era. And sure, there were a lot of great bands, but we had a very bad record deal from them. You can say shitty on the podcast. It's okay. I was going to say that. But it's like... Um, yeah, we did that. We signed with them, and then we were off to off to the races because, despite their ethical flaws, they did get uh, the album into the hands of a lot of uh, radio programmers, yeah. uh, especially at college radio. And at that time, that was a market. And we just it was only the band started in 1981, and by 1983. We were already had an album out and we were already touring internationally. And even by 1984, early 1984, we were touring here in Australia, where I live now. So it was pretty, at the time it seemed normal, but now when I look back at it, it appears to be have been a very uh, meteoric uh, rise to a very small level of success. You know, like we were, we were touring around the world and playing for a hundred people everywhere. <laughs> it, it, it is it is pretty incredible as someone who got that record, you know, shortly after it came out or within a year of it coming out. I, I mean, it's just the, I'm sorry for the, the the cheesiness of this question. Please forgive me, but did you have any idea, like in 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 any way, that this would endure as much as it did? None of us wanted to do anything else but play music. So I think. We would have all suspected that we were still musicians 40 years later, but uh, very unlikely that we would be in the same band because no bands had been together for 40 years at that point outside of Sun Ra's band or the master musicians of Jajuka, non-rock bands. In 1981, the Stones had not been together for 40 years. They had only been together for about 18 years. Well, and I, I, Buddy and I were had this conversation recently where we were going through, there's another band that I work with, I've worked with for years, who've been the same four members for 25 years, which is pretty incredible. And we started to go through that, like what bands, and I think we, we got stuck at ZZ Top and Hall and Oates. You know, what <laughs> bands have actually been like together as original members, which is no small feet. I mean, assuredly you guys went through years of wanting to kill each other. I mean, assuredly you went through years of wanting to you know, go off in different ways, but you didn't. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. Well, we have split up a few times, which, uh, you know, now in this context of COVID, 
It's weird because the world is sidelining us, but we sidelined ourselves a few times. But mm -hmm. I think that's par for the course for many bands. Like we're personal friends with uh, members of bands that haven't gotten back together. Like for example, the Talking Heads, right. Velvet Underground were apart for, you know, they, they got back together very briefly. Uh, the Kinks, you know, they haven't done anything really for over 20 years. So yeah, we've kept it together, relatively speaking. Has this made you appreciate it that much more the year off? Um, I'm looking forward to touring with the Femmes again, but on the other hand, um, I have an incredibly active musical life here, performing almost every week or you know whenever I want to, really. I miss the fans, I miss the, the, the other guys, I miss uh, touring. I talk to other musicians who are actually depressed about it because they're not with their band, they're not doing what they're used to, right. but I'm pretty adaptable. Right. What is your musical year like, like outside of the films? Like what, what is, what does Brian do? Where, where are the gigs? What are you? Well, I'm the, I'm the music curator at a museum called Mona museum of old and new art in Tasmania. And I have a festival called Mona Foma, which is museum of old and new art festival of music and art. That's been going for 13 years. So in January, we, we put on a festival in two cities, Hobart and Launceston, which are the two biggest cities in Tasmania, but they're not big cities by any means. It's about total population of Tasmania is 500,000 people. So we had 58 venues and we had a full program of almost all Tasmanian artists because we couldn't, there was no traveling even between the different states in Australia. And it was a success. We had 30,000 attendances uh, to our events. No event was more than 800 people. So it was like a, a blueprint for really how to do a festival in COVID. Because now festivals, big festivals are trying to come back and they're, and they're miserable because they can't come back. Yeah. But we decided to make a an expansive festival, but that had just a lot of small events. It, it worked perfectly. So then as far as my musical career, like for over a year now, I've been playing. We have a restaurant at the museum and we have a band there. Uh, the restaurant is called Faro. So it's called the Faro Ensemble. And it's there's about 15 or 20 musicians and about five or six performers. And performers, I mean dancers, actors and stuff. And we use varying configurations of those uh, performers and we deliver shows every week um, in the restaurant. So that's really improvised and creative. Um, I also play a lot of jazz. I've been, haven't been playing much rock music and I play shakuhachi, which is Japanese bamboo flute. So I've been, I've been studying that. Well, I have been playing it for 25 years now and I teach it, but I also continue to study it with people in Japan. And I play jazz on that instrument. And I have a whole bunch of musicians I play with uh, at local pubs, at the cathedral, at, uh, at the museum itself and wherever I want to. I also have been doing a, a, a video concert every day 
since COVID started. So I'm up over 400 <laughs> concerts, uh, which I put out on Facebook Live. And, you know, like it, it, it is different interactions with whoever happens to be around. At first, it was just solo because we were in lockdown. So I wanted to prove that even if it was just me, I could still make all kinds of music. So I was doing multi-instrumental extravaganza, ex extravaganzas and, and, you know, have just having fun with it. But then I found that a lot of people were writing to me saying that it was inspiring them or that it was giving them peace of mind because I have friends all over the world and a lot of them were in much worse conditions than me, you know, like the people in Europe, uh, people in, in parts of the States. So then I, I just did it not only for myself, but for other people. So it's been, it has, hasn't slowed me down at all. It's like we're living parallel lives, Brian, except I spent six months staring at my foot. <laughs> we're all in charge of our own reality. <laughs> well, going back to when you were saying when you picked up, and, and forgive me, what's the instrument name again? The, the, the flute? Did you pick that up on tour? Or is that something that you, how did you discover or, or have the want to go that way? It's associated with um, Zen Buddhism. So I was I was doing meditation, and then I heard about this instrument, which is a kind of uh, sound meditation. And I thought, that's for me. I'm a musician. This is good for me. So I started playing that when I was living in New York. Gotcha. And what brought you, again, going back to, did you, what, how did you wind up in Tasmania? Was it just going through, were you touring there and going like, I want to live here someday or? We toured here many times, and uh, also my wife, Varuni, she was working for the, the American Museum of Natural History, and they sent her to Tasmania to collect insects. And I came along because I had already been to Tasmania many times, and we just decided to move uh, to Tasmania because it was beautiful, fantastic. This was during the Bush era, so there was certain political unease living in the United States and we thought Say no good. yeah so we, we I was able to get uh, what's called a distinguished talent visa because I was nominated for this visa by Midnight Oil you know the most important band in in Australia so government gave me this visa and we just thought okay this enables us not to to be compelled to live in the United States during the Bush era so we moved and we just haven't moved back. And why? You know, I was going to say bonus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, except for this year, I usually get back to the States to tour with the Femmes anyway. So it's not like I'm not renouncing American citizenship or any of that or the culture. But uh, yeah, living in Australia is good. And considering that nightmare that the United States has just gone through politically and also with this medical issue. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, I have a certain amount of survivor's guilt because my relatives and friends are suffering more than, than we are, but. What do you miss about American culture? Is there anything that you're, that you ever go like, ah, I wish are you ever just like, I, I want a cheeseburger. I mean, what is the thing that. Cheeseburger. Yeah. They do weird things with the burgers here. They put, <laughs> put beetroot and eggs on the burgers. Say what? So I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Australian. 
but uh, yeah, we make our own cheeseburgers if we if we need uh, an American style burger. I miss the black American people. You know, um, that's the cornerstone of American culture, as far as I'm concerned. Like for me, jazz is the most important thing that America ever produced, mm-hmm. and that's, you know that's African American music, and everything else stems from. Everything that I like in music uh, stems from blues and, and jazz, you know, including rock and roll came out of that. Yeah. So I miss I miss African Americans. <laughs> you know, I miss being around them. We just marked an anniversary of Whitey Bird Sing and 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 added up is now re-released and finally on the DSPs, I guess, where it has not been for a while. It never ceases to amaze me how in Los Angeles specifically, the band has not only endured and the songs have endured, but it's not seeped in nostalgia. It's it's being passed on from generation to generation. I was coming up and, and through my friend's kids, the defense have become one of those bands. Yeah. That have been a rite of passage band. Yeah, I recently had a, a maybe 12 year old girl come up to me and say, you're in the Violent Femmes, right? Yeah. I just started listening to your music three weeks ago, and I listen to it every day now. It's pretty good. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like when you're reaching a 12-year-old, well, that, I mean, that's, that's a great feeling. Um, it's great that young people are still getting into it. And so when we do a concert, I mean, it used to be that we always had um, the audience, you know, we continued to get older, but the audience stayed the same, like... Uh, you know, as teenagers up up until about thirty, but now we have teenagers up until about sixty. Yeah. You know, so it's like it's really interesting demographic, and uh, you know, maybe the old people are on the back of the room, but we still get the kids. And it's so well, like compilation records are, you know, such an oddity because they are these moments just frozen in time. How do you take a song like that and? play it every night and is it just do you find like that original joy in it or are you reinventing it every night oh we definitely reinvent the music every night and you can even hear that like on the added up uh compilation album that there's a live version of added up there which is different and then there's a live version of lies which actually starts with the studio version and then segues into an insane sitar driven jam with ashwin batish this is an example of our spontaneity as a band, and that's the only thing that's allowed us to survive for 40 years because uh, we have songs, but we consider that like the springboard for improvising and reinterpreting, and we'll just go anywhere. We don't we don't use a set list. I just tell the guys what what's the next song to play, and usually they go along with that, like a like I'm the quarterback, and it's a lot of fun, and we respond to the audience in the moment. So that's that's what we're all about. And you can hear that distinctly on the Added Up compilation album and even on some of the songs on Why Do Birds Sing, there's quite a bit of freedom there. It's funny, when, whenever I, I, I was, I've been asked, like, what's the first punk rock song you think you heard? It's always, it's, it's always uh, Helter Skelter. And now it's just like, I look back at it, it's one of the greatest experiences of my life because it had that, that thing that punk rock does which it scares you it bothers you it 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 throws you off balance a little bit and then it doesn't leave your consciousness and just to see 
a band like you go through Zorn and go through these things and make it happen was all part of like, I didn't know it at the time, but was all part of my punk experience. I got into Ornette at the same time I, that punk emerged, you know, in the, in the, in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. I even climbed up on a billboard in Milwaukee that was for Coleman lanterns and stoves, like camping stoves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ornette. So I was, <laughs> some of my friends were like, Brian, did you climb up on a billboard recently? I was like, oh, yeah. And then eventually I met Ornette and actually met him a few times and, and, and even played with him. Wonderful man. And he, he liked the films. He told me that he, well, the first time I met him was after we released Blind Leading the Naked. And mm-hmm. he said he had listened to all three of our albums in succession in their entirety and that he really liked the music. That's got to be the so you had the capper on your career like thirty years ago. That's incredible. Well, yeah, and then years later, I met him again and and uh, played with him at his house. We first we played billiards and then we played music. Great man! Wow, that's incredible. Well, we just toured with X uh, and we played in Memphis with them. Actually, that was that was a good experience. And they they're very jazzy. And Billy Doom. And he was playing jazz before rock and roll even happened. Yeah, like okay. he played saxophone with Stan Kenton. Yeah, and yeah. he's been playing rock and roll since basically since it started. So that's that's roots. And that will bring us to our last question because we're just about gone. Can you give us give us one thing that we should be listening to? Tell people one thing they should be listening to while they're while they're locked up. There's a band I really like in in uh, England. They're called Sons of Kemet. K-E-M-E-T. And it's tuba, drums, and saxophone. And it sounds like the earliest uh, New Orleans music mixed with like hip hop and electronic music of the present. So it's it's very solid stuff. I like that. Boom. That's great. Brian, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know it's really early where you are. And this isn't what you want to see first thing in the morning. I know that. So... <laughs> Thank you so much. It was fun fun chatting and, you know, it's not easy to talk about 40 years and 30 minutes, but we did it. We did it. And uh, I I look forward to seeing you in 3D soon on our shores. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Brian. Everybody, we're gone in 30 minutes. We'll see you next time. Say good night, Brian. Or good morning, Brian. (laughs) This show was presented by Craft Recordings. Thanks for joining us for Gone in 30 Minutes. Produced by Laura Science. I'm your host, Tom, and we'll catch you next time.